One of my favorite musical groups right now is a contemporary Christian group called 10th Avenue North. One of my favorite songs that they sing is called The Struggle. Let me read, not sing, never sing, but read a portion of this song to you. It says, there's a wreckage, there's a fire, there's a weakness in my love. There's a hunger I can't control. Lord, I falter and I fall down. Then I hold on to the chains you broke. When you came and saved my soul, saved my soul. Hallelujah. We are free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. Your blood bought and made us children. Children children drop your chains and sing. So why, Lord, do I still fail? Why do I wear thin? Why do I still give in to temptation? On my own, I'm bankrupt. I don't trust you or take you at your word and what you've promised. Now, one of the reasons I love this song is because I can relate to the message. I know what the Bible says about being free in Christ. I know that the Bible says that Jesus has broken the chains of sin that held me and has made me free. And yet I also know what it is to struggle with and give in to temptations. I know what it is to hold on to the chains that Christ has broken for me. And very often I, I feel the tremendous weight of my own spiritual bankruptcy. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm not the only one in this room that can relate to the struggle. I feel pretty confident that each and every one of us in one way or another, we know about the struggle that goes on within us. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, the struggle is alive and well within you today. So what I want to do today is I want to show you what we struggle against and what we can do so that we can win the struggle. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 10. That's page 813 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Title of the message is The Struggle. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are good and you have done so much for us in our lives. Father, your word is clear that faith in Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin. But the chains have been broken and we are free. There is no condemnation that our sins are forgiven. We have been restored with a right relationship with you and your spirit lives within us. Despite these wonderful promises, these truths, the struggle goes on within us. Father, we do 
wrestle with our sinful nature. We do feel the weight of temptation and, and often give in to what we know we ought not do. God, we want, we want to be what You want us to be. We want to live the life that You have saved us to live. We want to experience the freedom that Your Word promises is ours. We want the world to see the difference that Christ can make in our lives. We desperately need Your help in this. We cannot do it on our own. We need You to show us, Father, what we wrestle with and what the struggle is against. Show us what we can do so that we can overcome. Help us, Father, not to feel hopeless or helpless in the struggle. Help us not to feel beat down and worthless because we fail. Help us, Father, to trust in Christ for our righteousness and our salvation. To be empowered by the Spirit to fight for all we're worth against the struggle so that we can live in the freedom that You have provided for us. Fill me this morning with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak the message You've given me. Be glorified in all things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In the verses immediately before this one, Jesus has healed A man that has suffered an infirmity for 38 years. And he healed him by telling him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. Of course, you know the story. Immediately the man was healed. He picked up his mat mat, and he began to walk away. Living out the difference that Jesus has made in his life. And immediately, the man is thrown into a struggle. Probably the likes of which he has not known up to this point in his life. And I want to talk about that struggle this morning. And the the main thought I want you to understand today is this. The struggle is real, but so is victory. I think this is such an important point for us to, to grasp. It's easy to fall into a ditch of one sort or the other. Because there are those who would tell us that being a Christian is easy. Once you believe in Jesus, the struggle sort of goes away and really you don't sin or wrestle with it anymore unless you're just an awful person. And if we buy into that, then life is awful miserable for us because the struggle is real. It's there. No matter how much we love Jesus, no matter how hard we try, the struggle is there. And believing that we're supposed to be better than that and we're never supposed to feel that, it will beat us down. It will cause us to feel worthless and it will cause us to give up on even trying. At the same time, the reality of the struggle cannot cause us to fall away and say, it's never going to get better. I'm never going to overcome. This is the best I could ever hope to be. That's that's false as well. There is freedom in Christ. There is victory in the struggle. And it doesn't mean that the struggle won't always be there, because it will. But it does mean that we do not have to be enslaved by it. We do not have to be consistently defeated by it. And so what I want to do today is, from this passage, I want to show you three enemies that we struggle with and then the things that we can do so that we can fight against them and we can find a measure of victory in the struggle. One, is that we, we wrestle or we struggle 
against the world. Now think about this guy. He has been crippled firm 38 years. He has sat at the pool hoping for something to change, but doubting anything ever would. Suddenly Jesus comes along and Jesus changes everything. He does what no one else can do. Can you imagine the joy that this guy feels as he is walking away from his hopeless situation? Imagine the, just the wonder he feels at being able to walk at what Jesus has done. And as he, as he walks away, in my mind, singing his happy little song, the never-been-happy-joy-sucking committee comes along to have a word with him. They take notice of him and they decide they need to intervene. He's a little too happy. He's a little too hopeful. He's enjoying what Jesus has done for him a little too much. And so he needs to be taken down a peg. And so they, they come to question him about taking up his mat, carrying it on the Sabbath day. It doesn't matter what has happened to him. They could care less. It doesn't matter the change that Jesus has made. All that matters, all that matters, is that he has violated their age-old traditions and he needs to be read the riot act about it. Now here's how I say this ties in with our struggle with the world. In later chapters, the never-been-happy-joy-sucking committee exerts their influence on Jewish society and they say, if you speak well of Jesus, we will kick you out of the synagogue. Now, being kicked out of the synagogue was different than being kicked out of a church. But, I mean, if by chance a church actually did church discipline and put somebody out of church in Guyman, you just go to another church. And probably they'd be very glad to have us, no matter what we had done or what the situation was. Not so in Judaism. Once you're kicked out of the synagogue, you're done. No other synagogues letting you come if there are other synagogues. You're not only kicked out of the synagogue, you're cut off from your family. Because once you've been kicked out of the synagogue, your family's basically going to shun you from that point on. You're also cut away from society because the church wasn't, or the synagogue wasn't just the place they went on Sunday to listen to somebody preach. It was the center of their life. Pretty much everything revolved around the synagogue. They were, they were going to be cut off from everything. To be excommunicated from the synagogue was serious. It was bad. It was life ruining. Something that could almost never be fixed. And because the threat was real, and because the committee had the power, people began to hide their commitment to Jesus. They began to be afraid of what the other people would say. They were afraid to public, publicly acknowledge Jesus for fear of what would happen to them. The Bible tells us that they gave in to this pressure because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise that came from God. Look at chapter 5 and verse 44. Here's what Jesus says to him. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from God alone? See, that was the, the struggle. That was part of their struggle. The world is trying to be pleasing to the world. 
A part of the, the struggle that we face with the world is the desire for acceptance by the world and the willingness to conform to the world, to do whatever it takes to fit in so that we don't stand out and we're not disliked. Now, the world, what the Bible describes as the world, is found in, in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, this familiar passage we're given what we could call the three elements of the world that we struggle against. There's the lust of the flesh. Now, the lust of the flesh has to do with things we can touch, touch, taste, smell, hear, and see. And usually, when we think of lust of the flesh, we think of sexual issues. And that's certainly a part of what it means, but that's not the end-all, be-all of what the lust of the flesh is. The lust of the flesh could be any sort of selfish or greedy craving we have that is purely to satisfy our physical desires. Basically, the way to describe the lust of the flesh best is that it is a, a desire to satisfy physical urges in ways that are contrary to God's will. It is a desire to satisfy physical desires, which are legitimate, which are from God, in ways that are contrary to God's will. For instance, there's nothing wrong with a desire or the desire to satisfy sexual desires within the bonds of marriage. That is the way God has set it up. It is sinful, always sinful, to satisfy sexual urges outside the bonds of marriage. There's nothing wrong with satisfying the desire for food. But it is sinful when satisfying that desire becomes gluttony. There is nothing wrong with satisfying the need and the desire for rest. But it is sinful when it becomes laziness. And you can take any physical desire that we have. And there is a godly, right way to satisfy it. And there is nothing in the world wrong with that. But the lust of the flesh wants us to go outside the bonds of Scripture, to go outside what the Bible says and to satisfy it in ways that are wrong. If you look at Galatians 5 to see some of the, the things that, that go into the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes has to do with anything that we can see and then begin to desire. It could be seeing something and desiring something that is expressly forbidden by God. It could be seeing something that is not forbidden by God and desiring that and letting that desire become pretty much the driving force of our lives. It can be something sexual. It can be something materialistic. It can be a person. It can be a place or it could be a thing. Then there's the pride of life. And the pride of life means at least two things. One is that the pride of life would be self-centeredness. Right, A person who is focused upon himself and wants others to notice them. It may mean they seek attention through dress or looks. They may seek attention through position or wealth. They may seek attention through the toys that they have. It may mean that they seek attention 
by doing whatever, any number of other things, or doing whatever it takes to be accepted. There are numbers of ways, numerous ways that the people could go about this, but the goal is always the same. Look at me, like me, accept me. Secondly, the pride of life would be arrogance or conceit. It would be an inward attitude that makes me think I'm better than others. Causes me to look down on them. Perhaps I'm wealthier than they are. Perhaps I dress nicer than they do. Perhaps I'm more educated than they are. Perhaps I'm cooler than they are. Whatever the case may be, it means that there is something in my life that I think makes me better than others. And I look down on those that are not like me. That's the, that's the world that we wrestle against, that we struggle with. And chances are we all know that struggle. We feel that struggle in any number of ways. So how do we, how do we fight the struggle? First, we love Christ and not the world. Like John said not to love the world. We are not to become so attached to the pleasures of this life and the things that this world offers us that we seek them ahead of the things that come from God. John also tells us that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, these things do not come from God, but from the world. Here's a kind of a, a takeaway from that for us. If something appeals only to my lust, only to my pride, and it can only be satisfied in a way that is contrary to Scripture, be guaranteed, be certain, that is never, ever from God. John also told us that the things of this world are passing away, while the things of God will last forever. But a part of not loving the world and loving God is recognizing that the things of the world are passing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. They, they're just a blip in time of eternity. We should see them as such. I mean, think about the things that we focus on, how we make them the focus of our lives. I mean, if the pride of life is something that you wrestled with, think about like in high school, the desire to be popular and cool. For those of you that have been out of high school for five years or more, how much does that matter anymore? Hasn't that proven itself to be temporary? Think about the, the lust of the flesh and something you just had to have and do and experience and feel. How long after you had it and experienced it and felt it, did it stay that great? How long after you had saw something that you just had to have? How long after you got it, did it lose its luster? It's temporary. It's passing. Remember that. There are good examples of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in Scripture. And let me give you two. One is the story 
of Zacchaeus, the wee little man who wanted to see Jesus. Remember, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was very rich. And he climbed up in a tree to see Jesus and he saw Jesus and Jesus saw him and said, come down. I'm going to go eat dinner with you today. And Zacchaeus was forever changed that encounter with Jesus. And he, and he said, Lord, I'll give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, which as a tax collector he had, I'll restore it fourfold. Now, that's a, that's a lot of money. To give away half of his possessions to the poor. To restore fourfold from probably every person in Jericho. It's a lot of money. What made the change? How come he went from someone that focused on the accumulation of wealth to someone who went to gave it all away, probably almost to the poorhouse? He met Jesus. And he saw things from an eternal perspective. And he saw that money was just stuff. And in the big scheme of things, it, it wasn't going to last. Jesus was better. Jesus was eternal. Jesus was important. And then there's also another story of a, of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And he also had lots of stuff. And he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, here's what you need to do. Sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. And come follow me and I will give you True riches. The Bible said that that story, that saying, made him very sad. And he walked away and he left Jesus. The man was sad because he couldn't look past the here and the now. He could not look past the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and let go of those things in order to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus loved Jesus and not the world, and so he let those things go. The rich young ruler loved the world and not Jesus, and so he let Jesus go. Now, we would all say the rich young ruler made the bad mistake and the worst decision. But any time we choose the world over Jesus, we're doing the same thing, just maybe on a smaller scale. It's important for us at times to check our love. What is most important truly? Not in my words, but in my life. Does my life show that Jesus, the kingdom of God, are most important? Or does my life show my lusts and my pride are more important? So we love Christ and not the world, but then also we have to let Christ shape our values and not the world. This is a big deal as well. Because the Bible makes it clear that believers are to be very different from the world around them. You find this from start to finish. And I think at times we have missed the boat on what this means. As believers, when we talk about not being like the world, we have focused on what style of music we listen to. We have focused on the kind of haircuts that we had. How long our shorts were. The TV shows we like. And so, 
we watch GodTube and not YouTube, and we have a God pod and not an iPod, and I wear a breadcrumb and fish shirts instead of Abercrombie and Finch shirts, and so I'm not like the world. But I contend those things have very little to do with what it means to let Christ shape our values and not the world. I think it means more our actual values. What is important to us? The mindset that we have in life. We're familiar with Romans telling us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed. That's, that's the statement that we have to wrestle with. And I think probably the most convicting translation of Romans 12.2 comes from the message paraphrase. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Now, just think about that sentence. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Have you ever really thought about, sat down, thought about what the Bible says believers are supposed to be and do? And then compared that to what we actually be and do. How the Bible says we're supposed to look at money, time, Parenting, holiness, priorities, reacting to others, helping others. And what we actually do in those areas. And I'm afraid, very often, rather than seeing what Scripture says and what we do, we just sort of fit into our culture. We don't really think about it. We have the same priorities and goals in life that unbelievers have. We have the same values that unbelievers have. We, we treat people the same way that unbelievers treat people. We, we're really not that different, except we go to church on Sundays and sometimes on Wednesdays. But outside of that, we really are a lot like the world around us. I mean, have we really been transformed by the renewing of our minds? Or have we become so well adjusted to our cultures that we fit in and we never even really think about it? The values of the world, they change all the time. The values of the Bible do not. If we are going to win our struggle against the world, we have to take time and examine our lives and our values and ask, are these things truly shaped by Jesus and Scripture? Or are they shaped by the ever-shifting culture around me? That is not a once-for-all thing. That is something we will have to do constantly throughout our lives. Because as long as we live in this world, we will struggle against the things of this world. We also struggle against the flesh. Look at verse 14. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more. 
lest a worse thing come upon you. It's interesting. There's no indication that the guy's infirmity came from sin. In fact, later Jesus is going to say that a man was born blind not because he sinned or his parents sinned. So there's no indication that this guy sinned and ended up infirmed. He was just infirmed. And yet when Jesus sees him again, he deals with him about sin in particular. And he tells him, go and sin no more. Why did he, I mean, that doesn't even seem to fit with the story. Not really. So why did Jesus make that statement? Why is that the one thing he dealt with him about? Why not say, keep up the good work, you can do it. Why not say, don't listen to them, just trust me. Why just tell him, go and sin no more? Because Jesus knows what goes on inside human beings. He knows our internal wiring to sin. He knows that within each and every one of us, there is a very real struggle to do the things that God does not want us to do. And a very real struggle not to do the things that God does want us to do. This is our, our struggle the flesh. We could call this our, our sinful nature. Same idea, some of the translations. And it's something that, that every person on earth has, believer and unbeliever alike. Prior to coming to Christ for salvation, the sinful nature or the flesh controls us. It dominates us. And after we've come to Christ for salvation, it fights to regain that control again. And then the basic idea of the flesh, the sinful nature, is that it refers to our capacity and our disposition to put self above God. But any time we know what God wants us to do, and there is something within us that pulls us to do something else, that is the flesh. That is our sinful nature. That is our capacity and our propensity to say, I want to do what I want to do. I don't care what God has said. It is our internal wiring that leads us to be resistant to the rule of God. But if you are a problem and you have authority issues, that is your sinful nature. That is not just your character. It's not just your nature. That is your flesh struggling for control within you. That is, that is my flesh struggling for control within me. I've mentioned before, if I see a sign that says, do not touch wet paint, it will be all I can do not to reach out and touch the paint. I mean, and it's stupid. Doesn't, what difference does it make? But it's not the sign. It is just, I'll do whatever I want to do. And that's not... Because I'm cool. And it's not because I'm tough. It's because I'm a sinner. And it's because my sinful nature is resistant to the rule of anything or anyone. Even God. Here's what the Bible says about the flesh for believers. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We're reminded that the flesh does not go away when we're saved. Instead, it is ever present, fighting for control of our lives. It is fighting against the things that the Spirit of God is leading us to do. The Spirit of God is calling on us to do the things that the Bible says. The Spirit of God is calling on us to be holy, to be generous, to be kind, to rearrange our priorities. The flesh is saying, it's not a big deal. Surely God wouldn't care. Times have changed. As long as you're happy, what difference does it make? And these two are always at odds. Uh, and that's an important concept. Because there will never be a time in your life or mine where the Holy Spirit will lead me to do something contrary to God's Word. But the Holy Spirit never leads me to satisfy the lusts and desires of my sinful nature. The Holy Spirit never leads me to step outside my marriage. The Holy Spirit never leads me to look at pornography. The Holy Spirit never makes me rude and hateful. That is always, always, always my sinful nature. And this is the struggle that's going on within us all the time. And I'm convinced this is the most important struggle. Because if I cannot win the struggle that's going on in here, I certainly will not win the struggle that's going on out there. So how do we fight that struggle? How do we fight our internal wiring? Not just something from outside trying to pull us away, but just our own propensity, our own desires to do what's wrong. How do we fight that? Let me give you three quick things. Reject the victim mentality. Winning the struggle against the flesh starts by recognizing that we are no longer slaves that have no choice but to satisfy the lusts and desires of our flesh. Once we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He freed us from all forms of slavery. We are not slaves to the law and to legalism. We are not slaves to our flesh. We are not slaves to sin. We don't have time to look at it this morning. This week, read Romans 6. Romans 6 is a long, detailed explanation of the fact that Christ has set us free and we are now dead to sin. If I were going to summarize Romans 6 in one sentence, it would be this. We were slaves, but Christ has set us free. That's the truth of Romans 6. And this means we have to give up the victim mentality. Right, here are some statements that come from the victim mentality. I can't help it. There's nothing I could have done. It just happened. You don't know what it was like. These are slave statements. These are poor, whoa, pitiful me, it's not my fault statements. My friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you had a choice and you made that choice. And it is all your fault. And it would be all my fault. 
For Scripture promises us that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But with every temptation, will make a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. If you are a believer, there was always a way out. If you are a believer, there was always help. There was always the strength to resist, but you chose not to. To reject the victim mentality, I must believe that Christ truly has set me free from slavery to my flesh. I must also accept that sin, that my sin is a result of my choices. That I did it. I willingly did it. And it is not the default setting of my life of which I have no control. It was my choice. The problem with this is that we are a victim culture. Nothing is ever our fault anymore. No matter what we do or how we act or what goes on, we are never, ever, 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 ever to blame for anything that we do. And that is certainly our culture. That is certainly not the Scriptures. Then the kingdom of God, the child of God, is responsible for their moral choices. Always. Reject the victim mentality. Secondly, walk in submission to the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote that we, when we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now they're both at work within us. And they are both wrestling for control in our lives. But it's important that we understand what they're wrestling control of. But the flesh and the Spirit are not wrestling with one another for control. The flesh is not trying to pin the Holy Spirit down and make Him submit so that He can dominate our lives. Instead, the flesh and the Holy Spirit are wrestling with us for control of us. So the flesh is by no means equal to the Holy Spirit in power. The Holy Spirit is, is God within us, giving us the ability to do all things that God would have us to do. So the flesh cannot conquer the Spirit and make it make us submit. But what the flesh can do is convince us that its ways are better. The flesh can convince us that God's ways are restrictive. That God's ways keep us from pleasure and joy. That God's ways are old and outdated and need to be rethought. The flesh and the Spirit are wrestling control of us. And the one that wins, it is the one that we surrender to. And along with rejecting the victim mentality is recognizing how this works. Because if, you're a, if we are children of God, the Spirit of God lives within us. And the Spirit of God is always saying, do this. And the flesh is saying, do that. And what has to happen is, we, we reject one, we resist one, and we submit to the other. So if I give in to the pull of my sinful nature, what I do is, I actively resist the Holy Spirit telling me don't. And I actively submit myself to the flesh to do what it wants me to do. And in order to overcome the flesh, I have to reverse that. I have to resist that desire. And I then have to submit myself to the Holy Spirit who will always enable me to overcome my flesh. 
as a child of God, each and every one of us can always make the right choice. It is possible to walk in submission to the Holy Spirit and choose to resist temptation and do what God would have us to do. This is a moment-by-moment decision. It's not a once-for-all decision. All throughout our day, all throughout our life, we are going to have to choose who we resist, who we submit to. And as long as we resist the flesh, and as long as we submit to the Spirit, we will never fulfill the lusts and desires of our sinful nature. And then the last thing we have to do is we have to crucify the flesh. The Bible uses strong language on how we're to deal with our flesh. We're not just to actively resist it, but we're to crucify it with the passions and desires. I love Galatians. We who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Think about the wording that's used there. Those are strong fight words. Crucify the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. These do not imply easy things. These imply a long battle to the bloody, bitter end. And a huge part of crucifying our sinful nature, it is to deny ourselves. This is the starting point for it, and it may be the most important element of it. Because if we are not to willing to deny ourselves anything, we'll never be able to crucify the flesh because the flesh is, is always going to resist the Spirit. The flesh is always going to be leading us to fulfill and to give in to excesses and to do things contrary to what God has said. And if we will not deny ourselves anything, then we will never crucify the flesh and live in victory over the flesh. So we can't just say, I'll crucify the flesh when the desires are past. Because the desires are never going to pass. Instead, when the desires come up, we must do everything within, we, within us to deny that desire. Deny giving in to it. And as we deny them, we are crucifying flesh and we are putting them to death. This is difficult. Because denying ourselves isn't something most of us are particularly good at. We're an indulgent people that live in an indulgent culture and it makes it hard to deny ourselves anything but no less necessary. And it's something we have to do over and over again. And over time I thought about this and I realized something that makes this even more difficult as if it weren't difficult enough. It's not enough to crucify the acts of the flesh. Paul said we're to crucify it with its passions and desires. So it's not enough not to, to not just do the thing. But I can't meditate on the thing. Right, let's say I'm, I'm tempted to gossip. And I choose not to tell the gossip. But instead I just think about it. And enjoy the thought of what I know. I am not crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. If I have a desire to sin sexually, 
And I choose not to take part in the action, but I think about it. And enjoy the thought. I am not crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. If I have a desire to say something hateful and judgmental, and I don't say it, but I think about it and enjoy how much it would have, how good it would have felt to say it to the person and imagine the look on their face. I am not crucifying the sinful nature with its passions and desires. I cannot merely deny myself the action. I must also deny myself the passion. Now, if you're like me, you can't stop the thoughts from welling up within you. You can't stop the desires from coming. There's nothing we can do about that. But here's what we can do. We don't have to dwell on it. And we don't have to do it. So, we can't stop the thoughts or the attitudes or the desires from welling up within us. But we can stop ourselves from meditating on them. And we can stop ourselves from doing them. And by denying ourselves those things, we are crucifying the flesh. And when we refuse, we are giving it a place in our lives. And let's be honest. Don't most sins start in the mind and work their way out in our body? Don't we think it long before we do it? I mean, before we blow up in anger and cuss somebody out, haven't we mentally cussed them out several times before? Before we give in to the sexual desire, haven't we imagined what it felt like before? The more we dwell on it, the more power we give it, the more likely we are to take part in it. That is why we must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Until we do, I do not think we will ever overcome. So we struggle against the world, we struggle against the flesh, and finally we struggle against the devil. Notice how the the never-been-happy, joy-sucking committee responds to Jesus for what he's done. For this reason, because he healed the guy, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working till now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus helped this guy, and so they decided the best thing to do would be to kill him. Now, where do you think the desire to kill Jesus and keep him from helping and healing came from? Well, it came from the devil. Because Jesus will later tell them that they are of their father, the devil, and the desire to kill him comes from the devil because he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Part of our struggle is against the devil. That's a fact. And we, when we begin to think about the struggle against the devil, it is so important we keep in mind the devil is not God's equal and exact opposite. So many times Satan is portrayed as though he were equal with God and this is simply not true. 
I think like Hollywood has fed this image to us. Because in Hollywood, when there are great spiritual struggles of good against evil, they're, they're equally matched. And in reality, in most of the ones I've seen, evil is always just a little bit stronger. But good sort of tricks them into winning at the end. You know, they, they, they find a loophole in the loss and they pull it out at the very end. And that makes for a good movie. And it's exciting to wonder how it's going to turn out in the show. But that's just not the Bible. In the Bible, Satan is nowhere near God's equal or opposite. Satan is, in fact, a created being who was created to worship and serve the Lord, but decided that he wanted to be God himself. So he enticed a third of the angels to to take war on God and he would usurp God's throne and he would be worshipped and he would be served. But they lost easily. And Satan was cast out of heaven and his angels with him. And they are now on the earth. And Satan successfully tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God and to rebel against God. And that's what he wants for us. Satan wants us to do things contrary to what God wants us to do. Always. Satan hates God. He hates all who are created in God's image. And all who have been redeemed by Christ. That would be us. So how how do we win our struggle in the devil? Resist and submit primary way we fight Satan and his demons is through resisting and submitting. We resist the devil and we submit to God. James tells us, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And I want to be clear here. Satan is our enemy and he is a part of the struggle that we face. There is very little biblical evidence that believers are supposed to be binding and rebuking Satan. There is very little evidence of believers casting Satan out. Now you find this frequently in books on spiritual warfare. But you find it very infrequently in the Bible. But wait, you say. The apostles cast demons out. Yes, they did. They did. But I wonder. What is a chapter and verse where the apostles told anyone else to do that? When, when Paul wrote about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, how often did he tell us to bind Satan? How often did he tell us to cast him out, to rebuke him? Oh, wait, he didn't ever. He said to stand fast in the power of the Lord. James told us to resist the devil and submit to God. Peter said very much the same thing. The apostles and Jesus did cast out demons for sure. But they never once instructed us to do that. Instead, when they wrote about how we're to deal with the devil, 
they said, resist him and submit to Christ. Now, that's not spectacular. And it's not all that exciting. But it is the Bible. And as I read through Scripture, I find an incredible power in the name and the person of Christ. I find incredible power in obedience to the Word of God. I find very little power in man-made formulas. One of the great examples of this, if we were to go to the book of Acts, we'd find ten guys who determined that they would cast out demons like Paul did. And so they they came across a guy who was demon-possessed. And they said, we command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of this man. And rather than the demons coming out or falling down, the demons said, Paul we know, Jesus we know. Who are you? And they jumped on the men and beat the pudding out of them. And the Bible says they fled the scene naked and bleeding. Now, you're more than willing to try the whole cast out the demons like Paul did. But no, the only example of people other than apostles that did it, they left naked and bleeding. I would say it's much better to just do what the apostles said and resist the devil and submit to God. It's not fancy. It won't, you know, you can't post that on Facebook and get a lot of likes and people be like, oh, that's so cool. But it is the Bible. And so we're going to have to choose how we're going to fight this battle. Fight it according to Scripture, according to culture. I'm going to resist and I'm going to submit. And I hope you do as well. So let me ask you, how are you doing in your struggle? Because I know the struggle is real in your life. Are you winning? Are you losing? Do you feel like a casualty? The struggle is real. Never let anyone minimize that in your life. Never let anyone say it shouldn't be hard. Because it always will be. The struggle is winnable as well. And never let anyone convince you that it's hopeless. Never let anyone convince you that it's helpless. Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. He is our victory. He has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. And through Him we can overcome as well. Some of this victory will not be experienced in this life. We will not experience the final victory over these things until Christ returns and sets up His kingdom. But between now and then, there should be some victories, my friend. And if you're losing more than you're winning, and if you feel like a casualty in the struggle, take this time today. Turn to Jesus and ask for His help. Let's all stand as our musicians.